Well, good evening, y'all, and, and happy Valentine's. We want to welcome you guys and thank you guys for coming. And, and if you were late and you missed dinner, or if you're online and you decided to stay home and not come and join us for dinner, you missed it. The, the dinner crew did an amazing job. We had, yeah, you can give them a round of applause. We had little hearts and valentines on all the tables and some really good food and chicken. And they put together a chocolate bar. So we had like this dripping chocolate that you could put fruit and all these other things and it was just dripping chocolate. It was really good. So I want to encourage you guys, you know, come and have that fellowship time with us and a meal and and come on out. Let's go ahead and let's pray and go before the Lord. God, we thank you for the privilege of being in this place. The ability to come and to worship you midweek to pause in the busyness of the day. Lord, we want to offer to you ourselves, our whole being as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. And whatever it is that's happened during the day or during the week, we want to set it aside. We want to be fully engulfed in your presence, and we want to be sitting at the throne of grace. Holy Spirit, bring us there, we pray. And I would ask God that if there's anyone that's carrying... Uh, a burden, that that burden would be lifted even now. And as we take a look at this chapter in Hebrews, this great hall of faith, may we learn what real faith looks like in application. We praise you and we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the
Dear Heavenly Father, you are the name above all names, God. You are who we want to worship and who we want to lift up, God. Thank you for bringing us here today, God. Just fill our hearts, fill our hearts with love. Just give us that sense of calmness as we sit here and just soak in your word, God, to not worry about things that have been on our mind all day. God, just clear our minds so that we can just take you in and take you in fully, God. Thank you. Just be with Pastor Carrie as he opens up, opens up your word. Just help it to fall on our ears, God. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Hebrews 11. I've been talking with Rachel today, and she was reminding me we're almost done with Hebrews. We've got a couple more uh, chapters within that, and then we only have about five more books, and then we're going to be in Revelation, which is going to take us a bit of time. But that's okay. But we started this journey through the Bible in 2015, teaching verse by verse all the way through the Bible. And I want to thank you guys that have been with us during this whole time. And uh, I was thinking, you know, when we get done with Revelation, what are we going to do? Start over again. And we'll go back through it again, and it'll be good. I'm hearing chipmunks. Yeah. Um, So tonight we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. As we take a look at Hebrews and this this account that the writer is giving to us, he's giving to us what we would typically call the the great hall of faith. It's a list of people that have great faith. So you've got to ask the question, so what does real faith look like? You know, in, in the world today, a lot of people, you talk to them, you say, well, I have faith. So, so... And there's a lot of answers to that. Well, some of the question is, so what is your faith? What is your faith in? And, and just because somebody says they have faith doesn't necessarily mean it's the right kind of faith. Faith should be able to be seen. Some people will dismiss faith as just a, a wishful thinking. I have faith. Well, do you really have faith or is it wishful thinking? Or some will say, well, faith is just a mental delusion. Some people will say, well, I have faith, and it's, it's faith based on a religious system that has is, that is created a doctrine and theology within that. So you kind of follow those marching orders, and for some, that would be their faith. And so we have faith in different things like faith in, in tradition and all of these other things. But that's not real faith. When we're taking a look at, at this account in Hebrews... The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are actually on the verge of abandoning their faith in Jesus Christ and going back to tradition, the Jewish sacrifice and and the Aaronic priesthood and all of that. Why? Because they're ready to abandon their faith in Jesus, the living Lord, and go back to an empty religious system because it was easier to have faith in that. It was less confrontational, especially during these times. Real faith is a faith that pleases God. That's real faith. So one of the things that you can ask yourself 
concerning your faith is, does my faith please God? Is God pleased with my faith? And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, faith that pleases God is a complete assurance and dependence on God fulfilling His will in your life. Where you are completely dependent on whatever it is that He calls you to do, whatever it is that He's doing, and fully depending on Him as He is working in your life. Again, you know, I, next gen, we're working through uh, Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God, and we learned this last week, I believe it was this last week, that, that Henry Blackaby actually went home to be with the Lord. But it's really, when we take a look at what he was writing about, it's really that God is at work, and He's always at work, and He invites us into His work. We are not inviting God to be part of our work, but, but He invites us to be part of His work. And a lot of that has to do with us depending upon Him in what He's doing, and the actions that He is carrying out in this world and in our life. And real faith really rejects the temporal world and really depends on the eternal. So if you're going to have real faith, you're going to reject everything that is temporal and be fully dependent on the eternal. And you say, well, Carrie, what does that look like? It looks like chapter 11 within this. We have the names of a number of different people throughout these verses, and they are touchstones. Now, the Jewish readers would recognize not just the names, but the stories behind the names. The accounts of faith that are behind there. So as the writer is writing these names down, it's triggering for these Jewish believers going, I know that account, I know that account. Why? Because they were brought up in, in these stories of faith, these great faith. And we see them, so he just needs to mention them, and it'll trigger these memories. And, then you'll, and, and I want to caution you, as we look through this list, you go, well, I can never do that. I can never do that. These are great patriarchs. They're great people, great people of faith. I am not that kind of a Christian. I'm not that kind of a person of faith. I'll never measure up. I can tell you this. When God called every single one of them, these were ordinary people, just like you and me, in the context of their life and the context of the things that are going on. They weren't born, you know, with... with this great faith, but it was God working in them and their response to God's calling within that to be able to have that great faith. Jesus knows that every follower, every Christ follower has the potential for great faith. He would say in Matthew 17, verse 20, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, and that's a third-class conditional clause, so it's a potential. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. If you have the smallest amount, the mustard seed, the smallest amount of faith, you can say to that mountain, move, and it'll move. Now, I haven't seen anybody move mountains lately, but when we think about that, it's hyperbole. It is really this illustration. The smallest amount of faith can do great, great things. Because your faith is in the eternal, not in the temporal. Your full dependence is upon that. People of faith who pray in faith are the most influential people in the world. Let me say that again. People of faith that pray in faith are the most influential people in the world. Why? 
Why do you think that is? Because you're not praying to a religious system. You're not praying to an ideal. You are connecting with the Creator of the universe and surrendering yourself to His will to be used by Him to accomplish His will. And so you become the most influential because why? God has a plan and He has a will and He wants you to be part of that. And when you pray according to God's will, He empowers you and He says, yes, you're saying yes, now let's go. And let's do that. That's why these people are, are great people of faith. Not because they were great people, but they accessed great power and surrendered themselves to that great power to be used by God in the context of their life. Which means everybody could do it. Now, to be able to wrap our head around that is really hard. So, let me help you a little bit. The creator of the universe has chosen you before the foundation of the world. The creator of the universe is waiting to hear from you to say, yes, use me. Why? Because he has a plan and he wants you to be part of that plan to experience his power and his presence, to equip you, to be the most influential person in, your, in the context of your life, in your circle of friends within that. So we're picking up where we left off in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, where he says this, But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Think about that verse. My righteous one, the one that is right with me, will surrender themselves by faith. Live by faith. But if he shrinks back, he's not demonstrating faith. And God says, my soul, I have no pleasure in him. Why? Because you're shrinking back. You're not, you're not fully trusting in him. And so within this, this, he's speaking of the righteous. So you say, well, what does a righteous one look like that doesn't shrink back? He said, okay, let me give you some examples. Hebrews 11. So we start out verses 1 through 3 with really the foundation of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So he starts out and he says, well, this is the foundation of faith. Number one, the definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1, if somebody wants to understand what the definition is, this is the biblical definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is believing the eternal and rejecting the temporal. I don't see it, I don't get it, but I believe it. Why? Because God said so. And being fully convinced of that. Now, keep in mind, the first century Jews, as they're in the midst of this, you've got to think about the context. What was the basis of their religious system? Was it based off of faith or was it based off of works? Based off of works. How did they gain pleasure or, or please God? Through the sacrificial system. So if they, if they did what was, they were supposed to with the Aaronic priesthood and with the sacrificial system, then God was pleased with them. 
But here it says, no, it's not that. It's based on faith is what really pleases God in this new system, this new structure, where we are saved by faith. And we are given this grace gift of eternal life within this. And so the writer of Hebrews, first off, gives the definition in light of the saving faith that has already been offered through Jesus and offers that salvation that's there. And as these guys were in danger, they were in danger of going back to this work system. They were in danger of, get this, shrinking back. And what do we say? God has no pleasure in those that, what? Shrink back within this. Now, you say, well, what is the saving faith? And what is this, this faith based on? He says this, verse 2, For by it men of old gain approval. What was their faith based on? The understanding of God as being the Creator. The faith is not based on a religious system. The Aaronic priesthood came much later. But faith was demonstrated much earlier prior to the sacrificial system within that. And so we've got to start with the foundation of creation. It's the center of everything. This faith in God the Creator apprehends something that is beyond our, our comprehension. We trust that God had created all things. And it's not something that we can understand. It rests on, on the facts of creation. That, there's a, that there is a creation and a creator. Now, the evolutionists will, will they'll balk at this. Why? Well, they say, well, you know, it took thousands of years and all of these other things. I can tell you this. It takes a tremendous amount of faith to believe in, in the evolution theory. Or I should say the evolution hoax. Because it's believing in something that man created and defined based on human understanding and comprehension that is outside. And you're believing that something was documented over 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, 63 billion years ago. Right? You're, you're, you're believing that there is this thing called evolution. That there was some cataclysmic storm that created a, a, a bomb that went off and all this other stuff and all these other things. It takes a lot of faith to believe in that, especially when there isn't proof. So what does man do? He creates his own religion. Evolutionism is a religion. And they put faith in that religion. When we have the Word of God, that's very clear in telling us that there is a Creator that is here. And so we believe the facts that are around us. And, and really, by faith, we're being sure of what we hope for. It's this confident expectation within this. And so these people of old began exhibiting faith. Now, when did they first have faith within this? We're going to see this with Cain and Abel. Through the eyes of faith, they, they come to this place. If you notice what it says, it says, By faith we understand. By faith we comprehend that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that it was seen, so that what is seen was made out of things which are visible. So we understand that God created. How did God create? The word, the, the Latin is ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God spoke and it came into being. And we accept that. We accept that and 
the early church, or I'm sorry, the early patriarchs all accepted that, that fact. The ones that were closest to God beginning with Adam and Eve. But even more so, faith begins with the reality of God. It all begins with the reality of God. If you can accept Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, you can accept everything else in the Bible. So you have to start with the reality of God. Faith begins with, yes, God is real. Yes, God is the... And, and from that the reality of God, yes, God is the creator. That God exists. Now, some would say that I don't believe that God exists. Okay. Let's think about that for a minute. You say, I don't believe that God exists. Does your unbelief negate the existing existence of God? Is one human unbelief capable of, of saying that, that God doesn't exist when we have the realities of God all around us through creation? Your, your unbelief doesn't alter truth, does it? For example, I believe I'm a tree. Well, you can believe you're a tree all you want. But you don't have roots, you don't have leaves, you don't have bark. Man can create all kinds of different things. But the facts don't lie. The fact is, we can look at the very creation that declares the glory of God. Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal powers, and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Roger, Roger Oakland was a, uh, a famous um, evolutionist. And he set out to disprove creationism. It was his determination to do that. In the process of trying to disprove it, he came to faith. Why? Because he couldn't disprove it. And he's not the only one. You can Google a bunch of evolutionists that have come to faith. Why? Because they set out to try to disprove creationism from a scientific standpoint, and they can't do it. Now, I'm not a doctor at all, but if you take a look at the human eye alone, and what the human eye is capable of doing, that is not left to random chance. That, that was by design. And, and you can apply that to every complex part of the human body or every complex part within science. It declares, the very creation declares the glory of God, that there is a designer, a creator that existed prior to the creation that put all of these things together. In the beginning, God. Okay. I start with the basic fact that God exists. And you say, well, what about these people that don't? believe that God exists. Okay. Have you ever talked with somebody and they say, well, I really don't believe that God exists. But when tragedy happens in their life, guess what they ask for? Prayer. And I want you to think about this for a minute. In one breath, when you're not in trouble, God doesn't exist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in church. I don't believe in all these things. My spouse just died. Will you please pray for me? Wait a minute. You want prayer to a God that, doesn't, that you don't believe exists, but you want prayer? Doesn't that very statement say that you acknowledge the potential that there is a God? Why? Because you're in a situation way over your head. 
In crisis, people will look for the eternal when the temporal is falling apart. We see that all around us all the time. True faith always believes and goes to that place. So what do we do? Well, if you, if you didn't believe in God, you won't pray. And there's a lot of people that don't believe in God and won't pray. As a chaplain, I go on a lot of scenes and, would you like prayer? And people go, no. Um, I, I went to a death recently, very recently. And I went in, and the first thing that the people were asking for is their loved one laid there that was dead. I said, hi, I'm Carrie, I'm a chaplain. Can I help you? First thing they asked for was, what do you think? Prayer. And when I asked them a little bit later, when things calmed down, I said, well, what is your faith tradition? Oh, we don't have any faith. But they looked for prayer. Which tells me what? There was a seed of faith. There was a seed of faith. Because they wouldn't have asked for prayer unless there was a seed of faith, but they're not ready to acknowledge a faith system. So I prayed. And I prayed the grace of God, and I prayed the peace of God, and I prayed the love of God in the prayer to water that seed. Prayer is our mechanism that God has given to us to connect our hearts with God. God says, I want to give you a mechanism. I want to give you a mechanism to be able to meet with me, to have a conversation with me so that I can communicate with you and your heart. Prayer is essential. And so within this, God gives us this way to connect our heart with God's heart to hear what God wants us to do. And prayer involves us in the already existing will of God. God's will already exists. God, God knows what you need before you ever asked. Do you believe that? Absolutely. You don't inform God of anything. You imagine going to God. God, I just found out I have cancer. God, I don't know what to do. Will you heal me? And God's like, I knew you had it already. But by you praying to me, now you're ready to allow me to guide you through the situation. I already have the answer. I already have the solution. But when you pray, you're connecting to the will of God and you lean into that. And so within this, God's given this mechanism of prayer and we pray in faith. Biblical faith is not blind faith. It's confidence that God the Creator revealed Himself through creation. And faith always, always starts with the reality of God. Always. How do we know that? We know that by the example of the people that are in this list. For example, the first one in our list, Abel, says this, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith. Though he is dead, he still speaks. Interesting. So within this, we find this, this encouragement of Abel. This is pre-flood. This is pre-sacrificial system. This is Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's boys. Who taught them how to offer sacrifice? Was there a system that God had set up? Nope. And with Abel and Cain, they both offer a sacrifice, but Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not. Why? 
Because we're told that Abel offered his sacrifice with faith. So he took something that he had to acknowledge the Creator and the giver of all that he had to be able to do this by faith, where Cain didn't do that. And it says that his faith in doing so still speaks today, though he was dead. Why? Because the story of Cain and Abel continues to lead us through these these, uh, hard times when we understand. We take a look at martyrs. The faith of the martyrs speaks volumes. You guys ever heard of Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott was a famous missionary that went out and he was killed. And he made this statement as he was going out into the mission field. He says, he is a fool who cannot, who tries to keep what he, or I'm going to get it messed up. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep. We can't keep our lives. He trusted in God and he gave up his life for that. We, we have faith, but don't have faith in faith. Don't have faith in religion. Have faith in God. So Cain, or I'm sorry, Abel was the first one that demonstrated faith. Why? Because he acknowledged in the very beginning God the Creator. And he gave to him a sacrifice acknowledging that God's the Creator within this. And in doing so, he, he was martyred for his, what? Faith. Very first martyr. He goes on in verses 5 and 6 with Enoch. He says this, and the next one, by faith, Enoch. And you're going to see by faith mentioned multiple times. By faith, um, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe, what? That he is. And he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So the writer says, look, Abel believed that God is, and he offered sacrifice, cost him his life, right? And then we, and he jumps right ahead to Enoch. Now, Enoch was, again, pre-flood, and, and he's described here as one who walks, in, walks with God. In fact, in Genesis 5.24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What does that mean? It means he was having a personal relationship with Creator God, so intimate and so pleasing, God went to Enoch and he says, you know what, you don't need to stay down there any longer. I'm going to beam you up right now. Enoch, unlike Abel, who died a martyr's death because of his faith, Enoch was taken to heaven because of his faith. He was raptured up and taken up alive because of his faith. Why? Because he was pleasing to God. And so within this, we see something that's super special. We see God giving to us an example of those that are pleasing to God. I see this as a type that is given of the church, the potential rapture of the church of being taken out. Those that are righteous and walking with God. Not that we're righteous in ourselves, but the righteousness of Christ is upon us. And we're walking with God within this. But it's in contrast to those that are in the flesh, those that refuse to have faith. Romans 8.8 8 says this, And those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. Okay, so we've got two classes of faith. One class of faith, I believe in God, I walk with God. Right? God's going to take me out. I don't believe in God, I reject God, I'm not pleasing to God, 
Oh, and by the way, God's going to take you out. We want to be able to understand that God is pleased when we trust in Him for everything. But those that reject God are, are not pleasing to God and they're going to be judged. Enoch was pleasing God. And notice what verse 6 says. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Why? For he who comes to God must believe that He is. And He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Was Enoch rewarded? Absolutely he was. That's a cool reward. Can you imagine? Never to die a physical death. That would be super cool. I'm ready for God to take us out right now. I, you know, I'm not scared of death. I just don't want the journey. It gets a bit rough. You know, I'm, I'm voting for rapture. I'm voting for take me out now. You know? But it's a challenge within that. The third example, Noah. And we all know Noah. He was, it says this in verse 7, it says, And by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Notice, things not yet seen. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is in the accord of faith. Now, if you want to read about Noah, you can read Genesis chapters 6 through 9 and that whole account. But Genesis 6, 9 says this. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. No, in his time, Noah what? Walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Right? We take a look at these examples. There's a common theme, is there not? Walking with God. Noah walked with God in his time. Now, if we remember the time of Noah, was it a good time or bad time? Bad time. Was there a lot of good people or a lot of bad people? A lot of bad people. Only eight made it out. Pretty bad. You think we got it rough now? There's, there's a lot more good people than in Noah's. You imagine how, imagine how wicked the world would be in the days of Noah where God would look and say, I got eight left and everything else has to go away. We look at that today and we're like, it's bad today. No, we don't know how bad bad can be. It was way worse. God said, I, have to, I, I, I repent on this. I'm going to destroy the world. Noah, here is what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark because God, I'm going to send a flood. Noah's good. okay. Whatever you say, Lord. What's an ark? All right, here's, here's how you're going to build it. It looks like a big coffin. Uh, okay, why am I building an ark? Because there's going to be a flood. Okay, God. What's a flood? There's no flood. There was no torrential rains. There was none, none of this. We know when, when we read in Genesis and it says the firmament above and the firmament below broke loose and the waters came Upon the land. It came from underneath. And the world was a big terrarium. And everything just cut loose. Flooded the earth. And God warned Noah about this flood. Noah spent a hundred years building the ark. Witnessing. Nobody listened to him. Everybody mocked him. And he's an example of a righteous one that's living out his expression of faith. Over a long period of time. Based on one promise. Get in the ark and I'll save you. 
That's a long time to hang on to one promise. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says this, For as the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will what? Live by faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting this. The righteous, the one that is right with God, will live by faith. Even when you don't understand it. Even when God gives you something and it blows your mind, you're like, I can't comprehend that. But you said it. I'm going to do it. So Noah continued on. And the next one, Abraham. Another patriarch that we're very familiar with. And it says this, um, all the way through 19, well, by faith, Abraham, when he was called and obeyed, going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, and in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations whose note, architect and builder is God. Verse 11, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of her life. And since she considered him faithful who has promised, therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, and that as many descendants as the stars in heaven and number the innumerable as the sands of the sea. Now, we look at this, and he goes on, he says, And all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who can say such things as make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who, led, he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back. As a type. So we look at this and we say, okay, well, that's a lot about Abraham. Why? Abraham had a lot of faith. He was the father of faith. It was in the Jewish patriarchy, he was seen as being the one that had the most faith of all of these things. And you think about it, he did have a lot of faith. If you remember when we studied about Abraham, Abraham was an idolater that came from an idolatrous family. Didn't know Yahweh God. Yahweh God revealed himself and said, Abraham, I want you to go to a land you've never been before. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your culture and all of these things. You can read about it in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. And he said, I want you to go to this land where I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I want you to go. Now, I like when I go on a trip to know where I'm going and how to get there. Abraham did not have Google Map. He did not have the ability to call it up and say, okay, this is where I'm going to go. This is how, it's going to, how far it's going to take me. These are all the rest stops. I like to know that stuff. Could you imagine having God come and speak to you and you have to pack up your family and go and start walking? 
God says, I'm just going to guide you. Isn't that an act of faith? It's, it's believing the eternal and rejecting the temporal, the temporal understanding, the temporal reasoning. Faith accepts God's call and follows His lead because faith sees the impossible become possible. If you note when we read, it said that Abraham believed in a city that was designed by God as the architect. Was Abraham really looking for Canaan land? Yeah, in a temporal sense, but he was looking beyond that to be with God. He was trusting in God and the promise. And is that any different than a Christ follower today? What are you looking for? If you're looking for a home on earth, then your faith is in the temporal. If you're looking for heaven above, then your faith is the eternal. If your faith is in the eternal, then nothing in this temporal world makes any sense, nor do you need it. It can all go away. Not necessary. Why? Because I'm trusting in God in the eternal. That my home is in heaven. That I'm just a pilgrim passing through. The other thing that's amazing about Abraham is Abraham was taken to this place, but he never saw the full fullness of the nation. He never saw the occupation of the land. He lived in tents, as the text tells us, with his sons in passing through this land. He believed that God was eternal and that there was an eternal city, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, young people, they want to build their life here. And I get it. There's a lot of life. Before I got married and I, and I came to faith, you know, I always prayed to God. I said, okay, God, I, I really want you to come back. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to being raptured, taken up into heaven. I'm really looking forward to that. But could you wait till I get married? I really want to get married. And I was conflicted. Well, God has waited, and 37 years later, He hasn't come. And I'm blessed because I've got five grandkids, and you know I've got my four kids, and, and, and they're all married, and I'm blessed with all of that. Could He come? Yeah. Now? Great. Do it. But I'm old. <laughs> I'm ready to go. But I talk to young people, and, and they're really struggling with the temporal versus the eternal. And real faith looks at the potential of what God has. God says, I'll give you a promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, as the text said, there was a problem. What was the problem with Abraham becoming a father of a great nation? He was old and what? Sarah, his wife, was really old. Past child rearing. Within this. To be in that place. And so, within this, we see... The promise in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, and, and it's, tech, it's referred to here, took him outside and he says, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, and you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Abraham, it's time to make a baby. Now, he's got to go to his wife and have that conversation. And we're not told in detail about this other than the fact that she just laughed. 
And I'll leave it there. I don't even want to know. But we do know, and it's, what's interesting is Abraham had at one point tried to help God out with Hagar. Do you remember the account? Was that a lapse in faith? Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? It's not mentioned here. I find that interesting that the lapses of faith are not mentioned in the hall of faith. These are regular people that would have great faith but also have lapses of faith. Abraham had gone to Egypt and, and told the Pharaoh there, he says, that, you know, she's my sister, and he took her. That was a lapse in faith, wasn't it? First of all, he never should have left the land. But then he, he denied, you know, and almost lost his wife, Sarah, and God had to intervene and talk to the guy in the dream and say, hey, look it, don't touch her. And, and, and he comes and he says, what'd you do? Why did you do this? Get out of here. Your God had to talk to me. That was a lapse of faith. Great Father Abraham, having a lapse of faith? Yep. Have you ever had lapses of faith? Sure. But God doesn't remember those. What pleases Him is the actions of faith. Because you believe that He is, when you act upon that faith. This real faith believes that God will be faithful to His promise. To do that which seems impossible. And God has a promise. Remember, God is at work. What is God doing? God's building a nation. And He invites Abraham to join Him in that work. He invites Sarah to join Him in that work of building the nation. All of these patriarchs, He's planning on building this nation. Why? Because from this nation is going to come the Messiah. And that is God at work. So by faith, Abraham had come to that place. You say, well, was His test over? No, as we read through the text... Within this, we got to understand that that Abraham and, and there was a uh, inclusio, or, or I'm sorry, not inclusio, a, uh, a, a side note about those that died in faith without receiving the promise. Abraham never got there, but it, it didn't change his faith. We know verse on 17, it says that Abraham was tested, offering his Isaac, his son, and received the promise, offering up his only begotten son. And in whom it was said, Isaac, your descendants will be called. So God says, I got a promise. Through Isaac, we're going to have all of these, this line. But before that happens, you got to kill him. Now that doesn't make sense. Take your son, your one and only son. Take him to Mount Moriah. Offer him up as a sacrifice. So he says to Isaac, who's in his, in his 20s, and he says, come on, son, let's go. We're going to go offer up a sacrifice. Here's the wood. Bring the servants. we got, we got the fire, let's go. Tells the servants, you stay down here at the bottom, we're going to go up. The boy and I are going to come up. And when you read the text, it says, and we will come back to you. That's the first sign that there's faith. They go hiking up the mountain, they build the altar. Isaac says, Dad, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the sacrifice? Can you imagine the cold sweat upon his face? Uh, it's you. Isaac who could have very much overpowered his dad, lays on the altar. Abraham draws back the knife, gets ready to plunge it into the chest of his only begotten son. The same son that was going to be the, the whole line of Israel come through him. And God says, stop. Now I know. Now I know. Can you imagine that being a dad? 
and you've waited for this promise, this son, and you're believing all of this, and looks over and there was a ram caught in a thicket. Mount Moriah would be the same mountain that Jesus would die on. On that whole hill, we look at this. It's an amazing account. But what did Abraham do? He believed that God would what? The text says, would raise him from the dead. He believed that his only begotten son, though he die, would be raised from the dead. Now that's a type. Do you understand the type? Who does that remind us of? God the Father giving His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, although God didn't hold back. Why? So that we would understand what the newness of life. God didn't shrink back. Abraham didn't shrink back. But what did Abraham really believe in? Abraham believed in the resurrection. In his faith, he believed in the resurrection. That though his son would die, that God had power over death and would resurrect his son. That's faith within us. And so he believed the promise of God. And what was the promise? The promise of God that he would not fail his word. God will never break his word. God will never fail his promises. Ever. That's why we can trust in him. That's why this, these examples exist. And again, to the Jews that were in danger of going back to Judaism and to leave Christ, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, they were going back to the sacrificial system because life had gotten hard and they thought God was breaking His Word. And the writer saying, stop it. God is not going to break His Word. Don't turn back. The text goes on. To the next example that's there. And, and these examples become a little bit more uh, concise. It goes on in verse 20. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. Now, it's, it's one passage, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 27, how is it by faith that Isaac blessed, blessed uh, I'm sorry, Jacob over Esau? If you remember the account, the father would give the patriarchal blessing and it was the birthright and the blessing that was to go to the firstborn, but, but he blessed the second, not the firstborn. Why? Because God had determined that he accepted Jacob and he was rejecting Esau. He was rejecting the firstborn. And Isaac was doing something that was culturally wrong. You never bless the number two. You only bless the number one. What does real faith do? Real faith will buck the cultural norm. Real faith is not going to cave in to what society tells you you should do. Real faith is going to follow what God tells you to do. Bless your number two. And within this, it was, it was following God's direction. All against human reasoning. And then we get to Jacob, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying... Blessed each of his sons, Joseph and worshipped, sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So there's two things that are there by faith. First, what did Joseph do? Joseph skipped the cultural norm. When he, when, I'm sorry, Jacob skipped the cultural norm and blessed Joseph's two sons, 
Ephraim and Manasseh. You don't bless grandchildren and give them a heritage. You bless the father. But he blessed the grandkids of them. Why? Because he's setting up the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh in the twelve tribes of Israel. In the twelve tribes of Israel, there's not a tribe of Joseph. There's a double blessing that goes to Ephraim and Manasseh within that land. And it was by faith that he does that. So again, he breaks the cultural norms. But the other thing that is interesting, Jacob says this, when you leave Egypt, and mind you, when this took place, they were there in, in, in this context. When you leave Egypt, take me out with you. What does he believe? Egypt's not their home. What did he believe? The promise that there's going to be a land, the Canaan land, that they would need to go back to, into that land. And so this real faith believes that God's blessing will happen even though it doesn't happen in your lifetime. Joseph would be brought back, his bones would be brought back, and he would be placed into the land within this. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised and oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did Joseph die believing the promise? Yes. Did he ever see the promise? No. There are many people in faith, true faith, that will die never seeing the rapture of the church. They will die never seeing the end times that come about. Why? Because they're going to be in heaven. But they're getting their blessing now within that. God gives promises, and He will always keep His promises, even if they don't happen in your lifetime. It's true. The next great example is Moses. We take a look at Moses, verses 23 to 29. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw the beautiful child, and, when they, were, and, and they were no, not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured in seeing him who was unseen. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted, were drowned. So we see all of these examples of Moses, much like Abraham. And Moses, another great patriarch. But where did his faith come from? His mom and his dad. His mom and his dad, by faith, hid him from Pharaoh and the edict to kill all the Egyptian boys. So he hit him, And when he couldn't hide him anymore, by faith she puts him in the river, floats down. Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, adopts him. He grows up in the house. Right? And then he sees one of his, his own guys getting whooped on, getting beat. And within this, we, he, he decides to stand up for his people. And is rushed out to the, he goes out to the wilderness, lives out in the wilderness for 40 years, out in Midian. And he learns how to be a shepherd. And then comes back, and we know the story. 
he goes and he meets with Pharaoh and tries to get the people out. And he leads over a million people out into the wilderness, through the Red Sea. You think about every act that Moses had. When Moses started, was he a great man of faith? No. Did Moses' faith grow as he watched God work? Yes. But remember in the calling of the burning bush. God says, Moses, I want you to go. And Moses said what? I don't speak so well. And there was a big argument. Well, fine, I'm going to send Aaron then. He'll go with you. You may have weak faith. You may have a, a difficult time fulfilling the calling. God is going to meet you where you're at. But keep in mind, God had a plan. Take Israel out of Egypt. That was God's plan. And he's saying to Moses, join me in this plan and lead them out. God turned Moses the shepherd into Moses the redeemer and bring them out and to redeem the people, to rescue the people, to get them out of the land within this. Interesting note, as we look at this, we go from Moses, who by faith are doing all of these things, and then all of a sudden we come to verse 30 on the walls of Jericho. It says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. One passage. Joshua going to Jericho. What, what do we not find in there? We don't find Moses' failure. We don't find Moses striking the rock when he should have spoke to the rock. And God telling him, nope, you don't get to go in the land. I'm going to take you on top of the mountain here. You're going to look at everything, but you don't get to go in. We don't find that in here, do we? Why? Because God doesn't remember our lapses of faith. He celebrates our great faith. And there's nothing else of great faith in the wilderness experience. The next great faith thing that happens is the walls of Jericho. So Joshua takes the reins, goes in, and they encircle it. Now, does it take great faith to walk around the walls of Jericho and not say anything? One time a day, walk around, go back to camp. Do it again. Then on the seventh day, walk around and on the seventh time, make a bunch of noise. Now, that is dumb. Nobody fights a war that way. That is just dumb. Real faith does things even when you think it's dumb. Why? God said so. Why? I'm trusting in the eternal and I'm rejecting the temporal. But it's not the way you fight. That's God's point. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to tear down these walls. And then you're going to go in. Why? Because the city belongs to me. Joshua believed and he obeyed. That's why Joshua's faith is great within this. And so real faith really follows God's instruction and obedience and just waits for the outcome. Then you got Rahab, verse 31. <laughs> and again, spies went in the land, made an agreement with Rahab. Rahab, by faith, puts out that scarlet thread out her window and she hides her whole household in there. When the walls come down, she's there. It's by faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies. Why? Rahab is a pagan that believed in the testimony about how Israel had defeated Sihon and Og, the kings. And she, she said, I believe in that God, not in our gods, when these spies came. So she hid, hid them. And so she demonstrated great faith that was outside of her religious system because of the testimony of God. 
And God spared her. And what's amazing is that Rahab is found in the genealogy of Jesus. We see this in, in Matthew 1.5. James says this in James 2.25, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way? She went against the king and everybody. As James says it so well, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith? Show me it. Show me it by your actions within that. He goes on, the writer goes on, and now he starts just name-dropping more people. And these Jewish readers would have recognized them. Names from the judges, the times of the judges. says this in, in 32 to 40, he says this, And what more shall I say? For a time will, will uh, fail me if I tell you about Gideon, Barak, si uh, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, of the prophets who by faith conquered kings, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut mouths of lions, quenched the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and the weakness was made strong, become mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We know that with Elijah and Elisha. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experiencing mocking and scourging, yes, and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two. And they were tempted and they were put to death with the sword. And they went out in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated. And men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And of all of these, having gained approval through their faith, why? Because they pleased God. But they didn't receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The writer goes through the whole time of the judges. And you think of Daniel. And you think of, of Gideon. And every time in judges, would, in, in judges, it says that they would have sin, sorrow, suffering, shame. And they'd have to send a rescuer. And they would cycle through that sin. Daniel having to go out and, and not bow to the king. And be put in a lion's den. And... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the, into the fire. And you think of the, the prophets and the martyrs that were being sawn in two. And they did not receive an easy life. What's his point? His point is this. Real faith does not bring you to an easy life. Real faith leads you into a righteous life that pleases God. And you may die a very difficult death as a result of that faith. But you can do it if your eyes are on the prize, the finish line, which is heaven, within this. These Jewish believers were caving in because life got hard. They were caving in. And the writer saying, stop it. Look at all of these people that didn't cave in and received their reward. Because they trusted in God. We have eternal promises and we have an eternal home. And within this, if you have faith and do not shrink back, you will receive God's approval and God's blessing. But the blessing is not a temporal blessing. It's a spiritual eternal blessing. 
It's a peace of God that passes your heart. It, it, it compasses all of your heart and mind. It garrisons you. It keeps you in that place. You receive the promises. When you get to heaven, you're going to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Is life hard? Yeah. Try being cut in two by a saw. Life hard? Yes. Because you don't deny Christ, they strap you to a stake and they light a fire under you. Read Fox's books of martyrs. Is life hard in this world? Yes. Will people hate you because you put your faith and trust in God? Yes. Will they treat you poorly? Yes. Expect it. But they did that to Jesus. Why? Because the enemy of our soul wants to destroy you. The enemy of our soul wants you to shrink back. Do not give in to him. Do not give in and become weak. This example is given to us to know if these guys were ordinary people that God called out to live a holy life, and they did it, were they perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But when it came time to put up, they didn't back down. Neither should we. The last verse, Romans chapter 117. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Faith is progressive. Faith is a muscle. It has to be built up. And through every trial and difficulty, that faith becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And you go from a person like Abraham, when he first started to Abraham being Abraham, David, when he first started to who he became. The apostles, who couldn't do anything right. And they turned the world upside down. That's the faith that we need. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give to us faith, hope, and love. That you give to us the assurance of salvation and the assurance of things hoped for. Even though we don't see it or understand it, God, we know that many times we lack faith. And it's because we put our eyes on, on the world and the situation. Lord Jesus, how many times did you say, Oh, you of little faith. Because they forgot you were in the boat. They forgot you were with them. We should not be people of little faith. Why? Because the, the Spirit of Holy God dwells within us. And regardless of the circumstances, may we not shrink back. You have invited us to your great work of sharing the gospel and making disciples. You've invited us to be children of the Holy God. You invited us to sit before the throne of grace. And we access that by faith and through the gift of life afforded us by Jesus. May we live by faith and make you smile. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and we'll close. Jesus, the 
thank you that you give to us the opportunity to be able to worship you. Lord, as uh, we go out tonight, may we live by faith and walk in faith, pray in faith, and fall in line with your will and your word, believing wholeheartedly that what you say will happen. And that you are there for us, not against us. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here and those watching online. And may we see you do great things and honor you for them. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed Thanks week. for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.